This is a Sunday talk by Matt Saradsky, entitled, Recognizing and Releasing Self-Centered Emotions, recorded April 18th, 2016, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, self-centered emotions constitute what I would call the fabric of our suffering, the you know, the, the real meat of it, the, the woof and weft, woof and weft, is that how you say it? So, what, what we mean by self-centered, which we use this term a lot at the center, self-centered. So, in this case, we want to make it clear that when we say self-centered, we're talking about like small self or ego self. And self-centered emotions happen when we identify ourselves either consciously or unconsciously with an emotional state. And again, a state is a, uh, another term that we like to use, but it's something that isn't permanent. It's a, it's a way that consciousness is expressing itself. So the emotion is, in this way, under the spell of our delusion of separation. And this gives it the illusion of being something that it isn't. So when we're having a self-centered emotion, we either dislike it, we dislike this emotional state and we want it to go away, or we like it and we want it to continue. But either way, we believe that we are the emotion in some fundamental but limited way. And our language reflects this. We say... I am sad. I am angry. I am scared. I am happy. And our, you know, our experience of these emotions is very limited. It's very limiting in a way because when we're truly frightened, we don't say, I am bored. You know, we, we have this, um, tendency to really lock into the state. Now, sometimes um, these emotions can be complex. They can be mixtures of, of different emotions. But somehow there's a combination of these basic ingredients of our uh, primary emotions. What we fail to notice often is that the continuity in our experience isn't the emotional state, but it's the substrate, the substratum, the I am. Notice that all of these have that in them. I am sad. I am angry. I am scared. I am happy. Even I am mad. I am a human being. I am not a human being. They all have I am. Right? So emotions come and go like waves. Now we know this intellectually. But nonetheless, we still identify with our emotional states and cling to them or suppress them in some way. Joel, in the, the way of selflessness, he outlines uh, what he calls the um, chain of conditioning, which is based on the Buddhist 12-fold link, links of dependent origination, but it's his own version. And uh, it starts with this primary separation, primary sense of separation. And then soon thereafter we have 
judging, good, bad, or indifferent. I can't remember the exact stages. Like there might be a, a two, stage two might be um, something a little different. But quite, we're quite off, off the bat, we start to push and pull. And in Buddhism, they call that clinging. So the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, that life is dukkha, which means really this, it's imperfect. It's not satisfactory the way it's normally experienced. It's often translated as suffering. But it includes the little sufferings, you know, just the little, you know, like the fly, just don't really like that, you know, flies, you know, little emotional flies. But it includes the great big sufferings too, you know, we have somebody that dies that we love, things like that. But what the Buddhist Four Noble Truths say is that the suffering, the dukkha, that comes from clinging comes from holding on, which includes pushing away. So I usually just say it's resistance. So somehow we're resisting our emotions, even though we know that they're going to pass. So if we want to be free of emotions, or free from them, not devoid of them, but free from them, we 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 shift our focus from this wave of the emotion to the ocean, which is the I am. So, in order for this to happen, we have to examine our experience, as with all mystical practice. So, you, you, you don't get off the hook without homework in mysticism. There's always homework. And the homework is to look at your experience, not to take anything on belief or blind faith or any of that. That doesn't go very far. It's useful. I mean, you need to have a little bit of uh, faith, like, well, this guy might know what he's talking about. Might be, you know. Joel always uses the example of you go to uh, a chemistry teacher, you know, you take a chemistry class, you have faith that the professor knows more chemistry than you do. But you don't, you know, follow him around like he's the Messiah. I mean, and, you know, he's going to wave a wand and make you happy or something. The Messiah is within you, is the, the reality. So. so, there are two aspects of our experience to examine, and these are the wave and the ocean. So, what do we mean by that? This is often something that mystics talk about. So, in the, again, in Buddhism, in the Heart Sutra, there's a famous line that says, form and emptiness... Are, are basically non-dual. Form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. Form is none other than emptiness. Emptiness is another, none other than form. So form is the wave. Emptiness is the ocean. You know, normally we think of emptiness as being like a... I mean, the normal it, it, normal understanding of the word in English, emptiness, is like more like a vacuum or a void or something. Uh, Hromi's teacher at Upaya Zen Institute likes to translate it as boundlessness. So that gives it a different flavor than emptiness. Something that's not limited. What we are is this not limitedness, not limited nature. So, so in this way, forms, all of our life, life's experiences are waves, are forms, these waves. So this includes basically two categories, and then their interplay. So the two categories first are our thoughts, our memories, our dreams, 
narratives. And these constitute the long-running soap opera that at CSS we call our story of I. Right. So this is, you know, I was. You, you can think back. You know, I was born in a small town called Eugene, Oregon, and they told me it was at the Sacred Heart Hospital. And I remember some things, you know, scenes from when I was growing up, and then, you know, some memories, right? And then, oh gosh, you know, what's going on? Oh, we got to get groceries today. We're running out of vegetables. I have carrots for my juice in the morning. You know, all of this. This is all thought. It's a story. Not bad. It's just what it is. And then, you know, maybe our hopes for the future. Gosh, you know, it's going to be interesting when our son goes to middle school next year. We'll finally have to drive him to school and be able to walk. You know, these kinds of stories, right? We like them. The second category is our perceptions. By the way, the first category sometimes, if you are uh, follow uh, Kant and also Dr. Wolf, who, who followed in Kant's philosophical footsteps, we would call it cognition. It's a field of knowledge, cognition. The second category is perception. And so this is sight, sound, smells, tastes, and touch. And this is what constitutes this fabric of our interactions with what we conceive of as the world out there. So we have our story of I in here, and then the world out there, which is made up of these perceptions, right? So we're just curious, we're examining what are these waves made of? <clears throat> what, is, what is form made of? What is our experience made of? The changeable part of our experience. So the third interrelation between these two is our emotions. And they, kind of, they really combine both of these aspects, both thought and perception, especially the perception of feeling. You know, so we say, we have phrases in English that uh, describe this. You know, I feel like I got kicked in the gut. Oh. Or uh, she broke my heart. Or um, I feel like I'm carrying around a sack of bricks. You know, these kind of, they give us, instantly you know what it feels like, right? Because that's a, you know, there's a very feeling-oriented um, aspect. Feel, as in the sensation of touch and, and of being in a body, the sense of being in a body what our body feels like. There's a big part of emotions, but also there's the story part, right? There's the, you know, she broke my heart. You know, so so there's this kind of a little subtle orientation how what I'm feeling is related to the world out there and my story about it and that kind of thing. So this is where it gets kind of interesting and we'll talk about this in a little bit. But primarily I want to convey to you that these emotions are something like energetic states. It's like a, there's like a, a real palpable thing. You know, if we, a lot of people say, oh, I have never had an experience of energy or whatever. But everybody's had experience of emotions, and that's what they are. They're like, you know, it's just shifting our cognitive lens a little bit and allowing for the experience of emotion to be part of our... Mm-hmm at least inner dialogue, inner experience. So that's what poetry is all about. It's trying, and all dramas, it's trying to elicit emotions so that we can identify in different ways with characters. I was talking with Romy yesterday about 
that show Game of Thrones. And it's sort of one of those shows where there's so many good emotions listed by it, but they keep coming back to one that I really don't need, which is disgust. <laughs> you know, and but then I get sucked back in because everything else is so good. And then, oh, God, I just... So, you know, sometimes emotions we don't want to have elicited. But... Anyway. So these energetic states are similar to electricity running through wires. It's, it's, there's a quality um, of our experience that is like that. It, it, at least entertain the analogy here. Some people would be like, yes, I totally understand. Some people are like, I don't understand what you're saying, but see if you can follow me here. So this energy is really the fabric of the interrelationship of our story of I with the world. It's like this interplay. And by itself, energy of emotions isn't either good or bad. It's neither good nor bad. Joel writes in The Way of Selflessness, which is his practice manual, Mystics view emotions as being a kind of neutral energy whose value depends on its use. For instance, electricity in itself is neither good nor bad. It all depends on what we do with it. Using electricity to torture people is bad, but using it to light your house is good. In the same way, when we use emotional energy in the service of self, small self, it leads us deeper into delusion and therefore is bad. On the other hand, when we use it in the service of other beings, or God, it leads us towards enlightenment and so is good. So similar to electricity, what makes emotions injurious, self-oriented, self-centered, is when the resistance in the wire, in our body-mind, exceeds the capacity to safely convey the current of emotion. So you can kind of imagine, this is follow this analogy a little bit, so now we were talking about waves, but for now let's just talk about energy and electricity you know, moving through us. If the resistance is too much, then it's like we get hot. We, we start to burn up. We figuratively begin to burn inside like a house with faulty wiring. We're kind of concerned. We need, you know, some point to have our wiring really checked out. Because down the street, there, there was a funny little remodel done. And down the street, there was another house that, you know, one of the outlets just caught fire. They got, it was nice because they got to add a second story when they remodeled the house. But, <laughs> yeah. I've got a lot of books. <clears throat> so... To do this, we have to learn how to allow our capacity, our capacitance, again, to follow this analogy, to grow. And and so that begins to let all emotional experience pass through. And this is a lot different than suppression, than not experiencing emotion. Many of us, if not all of us, learn as children that emotions are bad and that we must suppress them in some way. Or at least some emotions are bad. Ah, that emotion, that's not good. We don't want that one. Right, and so this is kind of like installing signal dampers in your in your home wiring. You know, you, 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 you just reduce the current, and we might not start a fire, but the lights won't turn on either. So that's not very helpful. You know, so I mean, I think a lot of people walk around and they've got this beautiful cathedral, but only a couple of the rooms have lighting. They've never seen the rest of their house. Can't even see the ceiling, you know. 
So what we want is a fully functioning home that can survive a lightning storm. Sometimes life will bring lightning storms. And in this way, we can experience without suffering, without resistance, all the richness that life has to offer. So, to return to the wave analogy, let's examine what constitutes the full experience of emotions. I'm not going to get into individual emotions. There's great teachings on specific emotions and how how you can see what they transform into as far as what the wisdom qualities of them are. And I, uh, Joel's book has some of that in it. I can give you some other titles, too, if you're interested. But just in general, the experience of emotion. And it's really quite simple. Our problem is that we overthink. Overthink our emotions. So there's an emotion wave, right? And then right alongside it, there's a thought wave. Almost always. At least one. And the thing about waves is that they come up and then they recede. They arise and they pass away. But if we have an emotion and then a thought about it, maybe a memory will surface and there'll be a little resistance, then we perpetuate the emotion by recreating it. We're actually, it's like a wave pattern of interference. So there's no settling down or we don't notice the dips. It just kind of, our attention rides the surface and it, we're just agitated. We're having an emotional problem. But really it's not an emotional problem, it's a thought problem that's interfering with the emotion. It's interfering with the full experience of it. So, what we really want to do is let ourselves fully experience the waves both the thoughts and the emotions. Otherwise, we'll just stay up on top of them, messing them, messing up, messing around with them with our resistance. And again, like I said, the full experience of wave of emotion requires feeling it's arising, and then it's apex. It can be intense, right? And then it's diminishment, and then it's conclusion and the stillness of the ocean. That's a full experience of emotion. You know, where we're grieving, um, that can be a take a while. You know, you can have a long period where, wow, you're just crying and it's intense. And But it comes in waves. <coughs> People notice this, that grief comes in waves. It's not like it just hits you, bam, and you're just stuck, you know, you know crying for, you know, 12 years or something. I mean, you know, you get these waves, right? And where do they come from? Be curious next time you lose somebody. This is actually a great opportunity to find that stillness. Or any emotion. It doesn't have to be grief. So... The trick here, the, 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 the challenge, is that to allow an emotion to subside fully, we have to let go of any thoughts that seek to disturb this natural tra- trajectory, this natural return. And so that's why we uh, practice meditation. We, we have to let the thought waves become still, or at least 
to cease interfering, to be aware of when we're, you know, thinking in a way that's interfering with just letting ourselves feel. So a lot of it's just retraining the mind to be okay with emotions. And then a lot of it's also being becoming really aware of when we're thinking. A lot of times we're just not aware that we're thinking. So... We get distracted and we perpetuate thought because we're just distracted by it. It's like we're um, hypnotized by our own mind. So the goal of meditation is to become constantly attentive. Uh, Sri Ananamalai Swami, he was a, a disciple of Ramana, the Hindu sage. He said, uh, meditation must become continuous. So what does he mean by meditation? He doesn't mean that he's never thinking. He means that he's constantly aware of his awareness. Continuously. <coughs> that's the goal. That's a lofty goal. But I mean, at least start where you are and begin to become more mindful. So with this power of attention, we can begin to understand the beauty in the waves of life. The thoughts and the emotions. And learn to trust that they cannot harm us in any way. Because we begin to experience for ourselves that all experience arises from a great stillness and then returns. So the self-centered emotion is the identifying ourself with this wave, which is a moving thing. It's a passing thing. It's a temporary thing. It's, It's finite. It's very small. Even if it feels really big, it's still, compared to the stillness of the ocean, just a drop in the bucket. And this ocean of stillness is our I am. Remember I said, I am happy, I am sad, I am angry, I am mad, I am human, I am a dog, whatever I am, there's I am. You know, we overlook it. It's so obvious. But everybody, you know, points to their heart and says, I am so-and-so. So regardless of where you are, what you're doing, or how you're feeling, you say, I am. You know, our culture is materialist culture. What we mean by that is it, de- it separates spirit and matter. It denies the spiritual reality. And it separates us into little wave bubbles of identity cards and birth and death certificates. You know, that's kind of if you believe, you know, or maybe voter registration or whatever, this time of year. So, you know, if you believe that to be, a, you know, what you are, limited to that, then you're very separate, very cut off. It's just not true, but it can really feel very separating. It's, it's this believing that any story, any story at all, even the most spectacular heroic story, you know, the story of becoming the president of the United States or, of, you know becoming a hero in, uh, you know, in, in a war or something like Any story like that not, can encapsulate the vastness of your true identity. So, you know, in truth, we're the source of all things. We're the source of the stories. We're the source of our feelings. We're the source of the world, too. But this is, this is never more obvious than when we watch with full attention 
the rising and the subsiding of the waves of our emotional states. So emotions are really important. The Hindus have a term for ultimate reality that I really like, sat-chit-ananda, and it translates as being, consciousness, bliss. So what we are is being, it's the I am. But this being is consciousness, it's awareness, it's not inert, it's not unaware. Consciousness is the foundation. And the movement of this consciousness, the the way it experiences itself, is bliss, according to this Hindu teaching. So how can we understand that? Because we don't always feel bliss, right? When When we cease to resist the movements of emotions, the waves, we recognize that they are all flavors of the one taste of water. And the movement of this is bliss. Another name for this fundamental bliss reality is love. Probably a better, better term for us. So, under delusion, we believe that in order to experience the bliss of love, we must encounter someone who loves us or obtain something that we love. We're, we're seeking for love in experience. We think that we have to hold on to a positive emotional state, which is impossible, right? They're waves. All states, all waves subside back into the ocean. And so this this belief is putting a limitation on love, and it's based upon ignorance of this vastness of who we are. The stillness of I am is always here. And this presence is love. And that's why the mystics say that all emotions, therefore, are flavors of love or reflections of love. The, uh, Joel likes to quote the Hasidic master saying that all emotions are sparks of the divine love, fallen from, you know, seeking to return. It's only in our resistance to our emotions that we fail to experience this truth. The Hindu sage uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj describes the experience of the Janani, which is the term, the Hindu term for enlightened person, in response to a devotee's question. So the question is, the person immersed in the world has a life of many flavors. He weeps, he laughs, loves and hates, desires and fears, suffers and rejoices. The desireless and fearless Janani, what life has he? Is he not left high and dry in his aloofness? And Maharaj answers, His state is not so desolate. It tastes of the pure, uncaused, undiluted bliss. He is happy and fully aware that happiness is his very nature and that he need not do anything nor strive for anything to secure it. It follows him more real than the body, nearer than the mind itself. You imagine that without cause there can be no happiness. To me, dependence on anything for happiness is utter misery. Pleasure and pain have causes, while my state is my own, totally uncaused, (coughs) independent, unassailable. And the Sufi mystic Hafiz, Hafiz writes, 
It is all just a love contest, and I never lose. (laughs) Now you have another good reason to spend more time with me. (laughs) So, how do we find this undiluted bliss for ourselves? The reality is we all have tasted it. It's the conscious experience of the ocean of I am. And we taste this any time we cease seeking, cease desiring, cease wanting. The waves of our grasping thoughts subside, and for that brief time we experience the deep contentment of stillness. This usually happens when we get what we want. And then we think that we're feeling so happy because we got what we want, but really it's because we're not seeking. So our problem is that we believe we are the waves and fear losing our identity in the stillness. We continuously recreate patterns and movement in our life out of resistance. And this perpetuates this experience of being these waves, being these thoughts and thought patterns and so forth. So this mystical approach is something radical. It's about learning to allow life to move through us and just be attentive, curious, increase our capacitance for all of life, sorrows and its joys. And in this way, we can begin to taste the ever-present flowing love that gives birth to all forms, to all lives. So, any questions? <laughs> Pat? I think I have struggled with this. I remember one of the classes that Fred taught. We were talking about having the thoughts and recognizing them and then kind of letting them just take their own... And I've always tried to do that when I meditate. But some thoughts trigger. I mean, it's just the, the, the emotions there before I can go, wait a minute. Sure. <laughs> Let that go. And um, I'm wondering, too, if it's, if it's a painful thought or uh, a worrisome thought, should we stay with that during meditation or just it just sort of back off and let it do its own thing? Or hard to... Um, I mean, if I'm trying to deal with emotions, which I've started this path, I've been trying to face the emotions. And psychiatrists and counselors, that's what that's all about. And if we go to someone, they try to, del- you know, have us divulge our deepest pain so we can face it. It's, it's, and I know, but for this practice, I try to do that, you know, with not really, uh, you know, that deep emotional pain. But um, I wonder when I'm meditating if I should... Does that go in a normal way if it can? But I can't always do that. Well, again, you have to be very clear what you're thinking. You know that you're thinking, and the painful part of the painful thought is going to be the emotional part. Right. So yeah, and so again, we want to. You know, the the specific practice is well outlined in Joel's book, but we want to let the thoughts subside. Or at least not, in, or at least not interfere with the emotional, with allowing ourselves to actually just feel the raw, naked sensation so itself. So you should, as long as it lasts, in and without trying to get into it. ride the sucker out. Yeah, because if you try to push it away or suppress it or do anything to alter it, you're just going to prevent it from showing you that stillness. And and then once once you've tasted the stillness, then you begin to trust. Right, the pain is no, no longer so scary. The grief is no longer so oppressive. If we recognize that it's coming from something so, so much deeper, and then recognizing too, what is that deeper is love. 
I think grief is especially good for notice, noticing love because it's about grief is you only grieve somebody that you loved, and the more you love them, the more you grieve. And so, what is grief other than a flavor of love? It's just love. It's love that cannot any longer be experienced the way it was. And so, there's all these memories and thoughts that come in, and you know, you want it to be like this image in your mind. But wait, what if you just let it be the love, and then that person that you lost is everywhere? Because love is not; it can't be constrained. Right. So, I mean, you know, when we. Spirit is omnipresent. Awareness is omnipresent. And and what we all are is that. So, when we lose somebody, they return to that. I mean, what their personal experience is, who knows? But our experience of them is. Is this. They they remind us of our vastness. A lot of changes involve something in the past, something that's gone, and you miss it. And um, and it usually is something love, of course, and you wouldn't miss it if it wasn't something you love. Mm. That's very good. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. I was talking with Todd about anxiety, and, and he was telling me that he went through a period when he was experiencing so much anxiety, but it wasn't something that he could just hold and it dissipated, you know, he had to welcome it in over and over and over again for over quite a period of time before it started to go dissolve. And and so I think maybe it's important to realize that it isn't just a one-shot deal, you know. (laughs) That same feeling can go on for some period of time before it really can resolve. Well, I think that's a good point because you know a lot of times we we try to um, take the spiritual teachings and turn them in. Well, we're, it's natural. The, the ego mind is going to try to co-opt them and say, "Okay, so this is a way for me to be happy, right?" So this is like trying to attain a state of happiness and hold on to it. And we're going to do that by this particular you know technique of you know, letting, uh, you know, so Matt said, if I do this, then, I, you know, and then I'll be happy. I mean, everybody's mind is going to do that. But the reality is what, what the key part is, is to locate resistance and learn to let go of resistance. And that includes all resistance, not just resistance to anxiety or grief or whatever, but, you know, resistance to um, the government or resistance to, you know... You know, the, the, the person who's driving poorly in front of you. Whatever it is, locating it and letting it go. That doesn't mean we don't use our discerning wisdom to make decisions and vote our conscience and, you know, drive safely and things like this. But it, it means that it's our, it's our responsibility for our own suffering. So if we're suffering, then we, there's something we haven't seen. Yeah. One other thing I want to say about that is, I think, really something that, that you said, which is um, it's helpful to locate where that feeling is in the body. You know, it's just, yes. It isn't just this raw feeling, but where is it coming or Where is it in the body? And how does it feel? And really get into all of the nitty-gritty of it that you can. Yes, that's true. Uh, I didn't put that in the talk, but that's very important, is that we become very intimate with w- where we're feeling. Like, 
you know, if we're just in our head saying, I'm sad, well, okay, but what does that mean? You know, well, my chest feels heavy. Great. Now you're really feeling, you're actually identifying what the sensation is, the naked sensation. Then you can stop thinking about it, drop the story, as we say, and just stay with the sensation. Stay with that sensation. This, it ta- this is a practice. It's not easy. For so long, we've been spinning off of thought, uh, off of emotion, into thought. We, the emotion arises and we don't want to go there. Maybe it's something that's arising that we haven't felt for a long time, that's been suppressed for a long time, and it's really scary and deep and dark and seems ominous. Seems, it can seem like it's going to swallow you alive, that you're doomed, that it's, uh, you know, if you go there, that's the way to hell or something. But wait a minute, all it is is your own motion. It's not like you're going to go act out and do something horrible. Just because something horrible happened to you doesn't mean that you're going to go do something horrible to somebody else. Just let yourself feel it. It's not easy. So that's trauma healing is, is all about this. Um, being, and, uh, you know, it's, that's a special branch because the uh, level of energy that sometimes is released can be quite awesome. So it requires a certain amount of skill and patience and, and so forth. But, yes, Sarah. Um. Uh, so these waves and emotions arise inside of this I am, but sometimes there's like another I am involved, you know. Ah, there's, and, you think there's another I am. And it seems like there's another But I guess part of what I'm asking about is if you could explore kind of dropping resistance, but also having boundaries. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, this is another thing I was thinking about putting in the talk, which is, uh, Romy and I did especially Romy, she did more than I did, but we studied recently some nonviolent communication. And one of the things about it is, it, the abbreviation, the acronym is NVC, so I'm going to use that acronym. But one of the things about NVC is, is very, very similar to what we're talking about in that when we're having um, a, a negative emotional state, we, we have to recognize that it's not what's happening on the outside. In this case, it's not the other person's fault that you're trying to communicate with. It's because... Something's happening that includes the other person, but you have an unmet need. And the unmet need is, can be one of many things, but they're always universal. The root, you know, my analysis of it is the root of all needs is the need to be happy, which we all have. This is, you know, that's the root of it. We need to be happy. You know, it could be I need to have shelter or uh, food or, you know, so there can be all sorts of human needs that are bi- more biological or social or interpersonal or things like that. But the fundamental need is to, is, is to be happy. So when you're working with somebody else, you have to, you have to speak in such a way that they understand what your needs are and you, and then you come to understand what their needs are and, and how those either can be mutually fulfilled or, in some cases, won't work out. That relationship, this person isn't capable of understanding that you have these needs, and so therefore you just have to cut off that relationship. That's a tricky project. I mean, uh, we have to learn how to do that some way or another, and I think you know, there's always room for more challenging ways of learning how to do that. Does that answer your question? Kind of, but I think there's, I'm sure that there's something in between, because I mean, what if, 
it might be like a teenager living in your house. Right, 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 right. <laughs> this happened last time I was up here. Well, it's Monday. It's like, you know, it sends back to these parenting questions. And I'm like, I don't. I mean, I think you just blunder through. I've never spoken to parents of adult children who said, yes, I did everything perfect and everything worked out. So, I don't know. Be patient with yourself. Yeah. Well, I think there is something to surrendering and not playing a resistance game that can expand and end a, a tug of war. Yes. There's something intrinsically in that that's, that's beautiful and right, but there is, you can also, you can also get just run over. So it's kind of a subtle, there must be some subtle, semi-permeable saltwater boundary. <laughs> yeah, I, we don't have teenagers yet. And I'm sure it'll be interesting. Um, we do. Our son is is you know lively though, um, and you know what, one thing I think is the, the more integrity I have, the more clear I am. The easier it is for him. You know, even if he, even if it's going to be, he's just going to explode and break something. But then it will be a lot sooner than he'll co- that he'll come back to feeling okay. So I think that's the main thing. Yeah. yeah there's a question over here, and then I'll come to. Yeah. I just wondered if there are any cases where the uh, physical system um, creates emotions that you think before the thought, or is uh, it like? For example, because of a panic attack, somebody said that this could be low blood sugar or you know something that you you're low oxygen or something. You wake up, you're just in a panic attack, and you, and you don't know why. Does this happen to you? It did, but it hadn't it hadn't happened for years and years, and um, I don't don't know why. You know, I haven't had it, anything since bothering sure. me. Well, it doesn't matter. So, so if there's no thoughts, then actually that's a little bit easier because then you can just go, oh, um, I'm feeling fear. I mean, this is fear. I don't have to let it go of any thoughts. There's no reason for the fear. Now, the, the difficulty with this is that you have to be aware enough to, to actually practice surrendering to the fear or whatever emotion it is. The first retreat I went on with Joel and Todd, actually, um, there was, like, after, the, after we got into choices awareness practice, my heart started beating like this. And there wasn't any particular reason for me to be afraid. There was no, you know, it wasn't like there was a snake in the meditation hall. It wasn't like there was something bad going on in my life. There was no reason at all. It was just the energy was being released. So I went to Joel and talked to him about it. And basically he says, this is a good sign. You know, because fear means you're getting closer to the recognition of that stillness, that emptiness, that the self that seems to be this small creature is actually something much greater, and that really doesn't exist the way we think it is. So, stay, next time that happens, go, ooh, goody! And instead of turning into a panic attack by going, oh my god, why is my heart beating? Oh my, you know, and then. 
then it can become quite, you can actually, you know, panic attack kind of does require that we feed the anxiety. You know, then it gets out of control. If it's just fear and your heart's going like this, that's actually fine. And, you know, unless you've got a medical condition or something. But, you know. well, that's what I'm asking. <laughs> You're asking a medical question? Yeah. I'm 85 bucks an hour. <laughs> this is free, you know, this is advice. This first advice is free. No, I, yeah. If it's a medical condition, that's a separate story. You know, you need to get checked out or whatever. You know, we're not saying just, you know, meditate through your next heart attack. That's not what we're saying. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I, I'm involved in nonviolent communication. Oh, good, yeah. Empathy practice group. And the thing I would say about it is we very typically, as soon as our emotions are involved, stop being empathetic with the other person because our own stuff is going on. So practice and a lot of language for it is to show that you're still caring about them uh, and identifying their needs while doing some work with self-empathy. Make sure that you're you're also having your needs. So it's very contrary to the culture we grew up with. But but it's it's really cool when you're in it and noticing your activity notice their reactivity, and still notice uh, a, a human connection of wishing them well and wishing well for yourself. Take practice. Yeah, that's what we've noticed in our house is that it's not, you know, you, you know, you can go to a workshop and you can learn it and you can kind of do it with each other, but then to do it with people who, it's quite challenging, <laughs> but beautiful. I mean, I think it's really an amazing um, well, practice. And I've only recently become familiar with Joel's material on the, Thinking about having less selfness involved is really I'm watching my reactivity, and you know, it's not the other person's uh, I don't know big self, true self, whatever you want to say that you're reacting to. It's it's their small self, their protective responses. So everything I can do to lower my selfness a little bit helps me be more present. Because it's true, it's like we're self-protecting in that moment, and if you're not, if you let go of that self, then the protection can be kind of dissolving. Yeah, you're aware of healthy boundaries, mm-hmm. but you're not pulling yeah. out the sword and shield. Yeah. Yeah. Have, 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 have we, I think I've heard us discuss it, just remembering that the other individual is suffering, too. And they, they, are, they have both the, the basic, the initial suffering, but there's something. So they, too, are suffering, and that helps with the mm-hmm. Pat? I remember an incident years ago, and... Uh, I was having what I call what I think is was called I don't know what it's called today floating anxiety, where you have an anxiety you have no idea where it's coming from or why, and I had this for, you know, off and on for probably about three weeks. When one I remember sitting on my couch, I was by myself in the morning. I was just, I just came back. I said, "Damn it! Just get get away from me! Just stop it!" And I just yelled at it, and it never came back. And I I didn't realize it for a long time. I just looked back and. God, I haven't had that for a long time, that floating so, And I just, the last thing I remember was yelling at it to my, out loud myself in my living room all by myself. And I, it, I've never forgotten that because, well, I've never tried that with other things either. Maybe I should, but it worked with, it seemed to work with that. I don't know if that's what did it. It may have floated away on its own for all I know, but. I, it was just an interesting... No, that's an example of coming up with your own strategy and, you know... Yeah, so. uh-huh, it worked. <laughs> we all have to... Eventually, we all have to come up with our own specific, you know... Yeah. Everybody's experience is very unique. So there's there's generalities that are true. You know, we're all 
and our true identity is the same, but we're going to have, you know, and we wouldn't want it to be like, oh, follow this cookie cutter list and you'll be free. You know what I mean? You know, like it's baking a pie or something. You just, just would be really quite trite and, um, yeah, life is a little more complicated. So was there another question? Yeah, in the back. Yeah. Um, I really liked your analogy with the electrical thing in the house. That was great. I never heard that before. Um, and I was wondering, uh, you know, Joel talks about um, self-centered emotions and non-self-centered emotions, and I just wondered how do the non-self-centered emotions work? Maybe using that analogy or however you can. Uh, well, I, I think once we've once we begin to trust that we're going to be okay, then we can let the motion move through. And it's more of like, you know, like when we're watching a drama or something, we enjoy feelings, these different flavors, but we're not identified. We don't think it's happening to me, you know, but we're still feeling the emotions. We're watching a show. We feel the emotions. It's not that we're not feeling the emotions. It's just that we don't have that sort of existential, you know, anxiety or, uh, you know, so... It can be more. Um, there's there's freedom around it, you know. There's there's it was more of a play than a some sort of serious thing that you know that we need to defend ourselves and so forth. And then and then 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 if we're dealing with other people, we can be a little more experimental. We can be like, okay, a person, you know, maybe I could try this, you know. And I mean, you know, half the time I fall on my face anyway. But at least you know you try different. Approaches you don't feel so stuck into that, what you know, fighting like you always fought with your mom or something. So it's still the same. I mean, maybe the self-centered emotion is when that resistance comes up in the circuit. But if the emotion just happens without the resistance, then it's a not yeah. Yeah, you know, I think. I mean, you know, I still like. Okay, so this is a good example. When my friend Liz died and I was grieving. I experienced grief. I cried. I, it was I was very sad, but it was very physical, and the and and I actually had an appreciation for it. I mean, she had just died, and it was a painful death from cancer. It wasn't like, you know, she she had grown old and then drifted peacefully or something. It was not a super pleasant way to go, but there was this real appreciation for how much love that I had. I I don't know how to say, I I actually in a way relished it and then when I when those waves of grief stopped coming I kind of missed it but it wasn't up to me it was just you know it's not we we just our problem is that we're isolating ourselves to that being you know I am sad I feel that I am the sad but when we recognize that we're not the sad we're the the substratum then the sad can come and it's okay it's not it's not about me. So yeah, I think it's something like having less resistance. The, the wiring works right. You know, it's not like you have some rooms that just kind of. We've got this one ballast that needs to be replaced. You know, and I get I, for some reason I have a better shot at turning it on than Hiromi. You know, <laughs> but even mine's still like you know maybe sixty five percent of the time it'll turn on for me. You know? So that you know that's like a lot of us have these. Wiring that just doesn't quite work all the time. <laughs> Somebody over here? Yeah. 
I had this experience uh, recently, and maybe maybe this is kind of what you're talking about. I was in a talk, a little bit of confrontation with somebody, and I could feel the fear coming up with me that I wasn't going to be able to um, communicate very clearly with the other person, you know, that I was going to have to take care of myself. And then at that moment when I realized it, I just thought, oh, I bet they're feeling fear also. And the fear of mine kind of disappeared, and then it was like my communication could kind of go like, well, are you worried about this, or, or is this your concern? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, well, and this is a, you know, this is sort of a little bit off from what I was specifically talking about in the talk, but what we brought up with NVC and when you're dealing with more than, you know, you're dealing with more than one set of emotions, then it's a, it becomes this dance and the key is, like you said, empathy. You know, like, uh, what was your name, sir? Jake. Jake was talking about. And, um, and so that's that application of compassion, right, which begins to dissolve our self-centered conditioning. So, you know, when we love somebody, it's easier to... In one sense, you know, if we're in an intimate relationship, it's easier to get angry at them. But it's also it's easier to see their suffering. But we want that to become universal on on the path. We want to gradually begin to see how all suffering is suffering. It's all this resistance. It's a universal thing. It's not my suffering or your suffering. It's what it is. You know, it's not like. Um... And well, anyway, that that's a that begins to melt us. That begins to you know. So we got these two tools. We have our our insight that comes from really examining our experience, and it's more like a pickaxe. You know, you've got the wall of delusion. This is another Joel analogy. Wall of delusion, you're picking away at it. You can also melt it with uh, acid, and that's more like compassion. You just dissolve the resistance, dissolve it. So it's, it's wonderful when you can do that. All, you know, and, and it's like, wait a minute, there was this wall here, and now it's gone, right? It's like it just shifts it right away. Well, the, the, when I encounter my own negative emotions, that's the, the feeling of helplessness comes in. I mean, I, come, I almost see it building up. I see how my it you know, gets narrower, my vision. I just feel like something's tightening, but then I, I just don't seem to... I see it happening, but I don't see... I'm hooked. How do I get out of the... How do I can... How can I stop this so I don't get carried away with the wave and have to wait until I come back down? Like almost like the pain body, how Eckhart Tolle says, I just I feel almost helpless. I know it's happening. Yeah. I don't know where do I stop it? Where do I put on the brakes for this first? Where I can get more control of it? Well, so that's the thing. So we want control, but we don't have it, and we're not. And actually, what freedom is is recognizing we don't have control, at least not in that way. I mean, control, what, you know, control, it sounds so limiting anyway. What we have is freedom. And then, you know, life happens through that. But we want to say, oh, well, I don't want that to happen. I want this to happen. And, that, and that, that's suffering, yeah. bottom line. But what I would recommend is be, you know, work in your practice to become more spacious so that you have more um, room for that um, very strong emotion to arise without overwhelming you because it can be overwhelming and sometimes so in my uh, you know I'm a, in my medical practice I'm an acupuncturist and I do craniosacral therapy so with craniosacral therapy we do there's a branch of it called somato-emotional release where we do work directly with releasing emotional content 
and it can be helpful for people because you have somebody else there that it kind of gives you a sense of safety um, there, and also kind of keeps your attention on the s- sensation instead of going off into the thought. So those two things. So, you know, sometimes there's trauma that, you know, and there's, there's other methods besides that. You know, there's um, Peter Levine's work and there's, there's lots of things that we can do to release these energies from our body. But they all come down to recognizing that where we're going is safe. It's always there. It's our true nature. And that what we need to do is to not interfere with the emotion, with our thoughts and our resistance, but allow it to move through. Then it begins to clear itself up. It's like we purify ourselves that way. Yeah, that's what I'm not doing exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it can be difficult and it takes practice and it also might sometimes you need help. That's okay. Yeah, Susan. I had an analogy as a patient of yours uh, helping me do that release. Um, I never shared it with anybody, but it was like you were my midwife. Um, yeah, it can be that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes when we when when we have these experiences, and I've had it too, um, where an emotion is coming up that you haven't seen for, it's been like it's like really old. It's you, you know you were little maybe, and it's it's almost like something is coming up through you that you know giving birth to a new integrity, really a new wholeness. But it's by in, in, including something that was previously suppressed. So. Okay. okay, last question. I, just, I was just a comment. It, just, it feels to me, in my experience, that helplessness and powerlessness are just total gateways. And I've come to, like, they still trigger me a little bit, but I always realize that that's, oh, this is the opportunity. And I can't even put words to it, but... It's uncomfortable, but it's such a gateway to surrender and dissolving. Yeah. And so it's somehow letting that be familiar and inviting and spacious. Um, even if you create a mental formation that, oh, powerlessness again. Freedom, you know. Yeah. There's no way that we can make ourselves surrender, but we can know that that, and we can learn gradually that when we surrender then there's peace right there. But it's, um, it's nothing you can make. It's not made by the uh, hands of humanity. It's, it comes by grace. Okay. Um, till next time. Peace to you all.